We continue this morning our journey through the fruit of the Spirit, which the Apostle Paul talks about in the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians. These are the markers or the indicators of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. If we have been renewed in Jesus Christ, if His Spirit is indwelling in us, then these are the virtues and the life characteristics that should begin to be evident in us. We continue our journey through them. Let me ask you to turn with me first to the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. We'll read a beautiful passage there beginning in verse 11. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, has this to say. He says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And now let me invite you to once again hear these words from our focal passage in Galatians chapter 5, a portion of verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. A friend said something to me just recently that forced an uncomfortable insight. Like everyone else their age, my daughters have never known a single day of peace in their entire life. You see, they were born after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, and our country has been at war ever since. Now, those in the military, those who have loved ones in the military, have felt that reality far more intensely than my family has, but nevertheless, we have an entire generation of Americans who have never known life without armed conflict. Or some would say that's just the way the world is and maybe they have a point. I read recently that according to an organization called the Society for International Law, out of the last 4,000 years of recorded history, there have only been a collective total of 268 years of worldwide peace. That means that for over 90% of world history, somebody has been at war 
with somebody else. Of course, you don't need a declaration of war to feel as though conflict is just the natural state of things in our world. Everywhere we look, there's some kind of battle being raged. Our political system pits one party's agenda against another's, and the battle is waged until an election determines a winner and a loser. Our legal system is based upon an adversarial model that puts a defendant up against a plaintiff until a ruling is made. Our public conversations involve high levels of racial distrust with everybody trying to tell their story louder than everybody else and nobody's really listening to anyone. Our social media feeds are filled with angry memes and virulent attacks on those other people, you know, the ones who are responsible for all of our problems, the ones who are different from us. We went to bed last night with the news of one mass shooting and woke up this morning to the news of another one. Everywhere we turn, it feels like there's conflict, strife, anger, violence, our lives are mired in conflict. If it's worth anything to you, I don't believe that's how God intended it. The creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 gives us a beautiful glimpse of what God had in mind. God created a perfect garden in which everything existed in harmony and balance and in the right proportion Notice how often in the creation story, things are paired with each other. There's heaven and there's earth. There's sea and there's dry land. There's night and there is day. There's male and there is female. And there's not a hint of conflict or strife between any of them. None of these pairs are trying to outdo each other. No one's competing for dominance. Everything is contributing to and receiving from the goodness of the whole. That is what God designed. The problem begins in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve disobey and fall into a state of sin. And that allows a spirit of rebellion into God's good creation and things go south quickly. We read in verse 18 of Genesis 3 that the perfect garden now has thorns and thistles growing in it. And just a few verses earlier, in Genesis 3 verse 15, God makes that famous statement to the serpent, the one who was responsible for introducing that temptation in the first place. He says to the serpent that he, God, will put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. Enmity. It is a word which means hostility, strife, conflict. That is the outcome of human sin. And we've been living in it ever since. So when the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 5 verse 22 that one of the markers of the Holy Spirit is peace, we should sit up and take notice. Our daily experience tells us that we are at war and yet here is the Bible telling us that peace can be had. 
And to know what that means, we need to do a little work to define the word. In common usage, peace refers to the absence of conflict. It's what happens when people stop fighting with each other. But in the Bible, peace has a fuller and more expansive and vibrant meaning. The Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language, and the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. It appears in hundreds of places throughout the book. But if we were to explore all the places that it appears, we'd find it has a wonderfully complex meaning, lots of rich layers of nuance to it. But it doesn't refer simply to the absence of conflict. At its most basic level, shalom refers to the presence of goodness and well-being. Shalom means the presence of wholeness, completeness. Where there is shalom, there's material wholeness. Because people have enough of what they need to live on. That wholeness is emotional because where there is shalom, it means people are freed from unnecessary fear and anxiety. That wholeness is relational because where there is shalom, it means people have meaningful connections to one another. And that wholeness is spiritual. Because where there is shalom, it means there is an active awareness of God's presence and goodness why in the Hebrew language even today shalom is still a traditional greeting that's used to welcome one another if someone says to you shalom brother they're saying more than gosh I hope you don't have any fights today they're saying no I pray God's goodness upon you I pray God's wholeness and well-being to be present to you today Now, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and Greek words sometimes have slightly different nuances than the comparable Hebrew words. But in this case, because the writers of the New Testament were steeped in a Hebrew way of thinking, we can be fairly confident that when they used the Greek word for peace, they intended it to convey that same layer of richness of meaning, that same wishing for wholeness and completeness and well-being. We look at all the ways that peace is discussed in the New Testament. We can speak about that peace extending out in three directions all at the same time, all of which are vital if we are going to live into the fullness of what God intended for us, if we're going to recapture a vision of what Genesis 1 gives us. First, that peace is expressed upward in our relationship with God. We name this first because this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ begins. The basic point of the gospel message is that through his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus Christ has made peace between us and our Father. Because of our sin, we've been separated from God. We've been removed from His presence. But thanks to Jesus and what He accomplished, that no longer has to be the case. We can now be at peace with Him. We can be reconciled with the one from whom we cut ourselves off through our own act of rebellion. 
This is at least part of what that beautiful passage we read in Ephesians 2 a moment ago is celebrating. Through his crucifixion, Jesus has reconciled us to the Father. He's paid our debt and he's transferred his righteousness onto us. That means that God now looks at us and thanks to the merits of Jesus Christ declares that we are righteous. That doesn't mean that we have lived into a state of moral perfection. It means that God now looks at us through the eyes of what Jesus has done and declares that we are now in a right relationship with him. We now have peace with the Father. Now, some people might say it's odd to begin a discussion of peace there. Because according to the average person on the street, most folks are probably not too worried about whether or not they have peace with God. There are many other problems in life that feel so much more pressing and important. But the Bible tells a different story. You see, according to Scripture, this is our greatest problem. We are cut off from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, what was the first thing they did? They went and hid from God. We have been cut off from Him. And the Scriptures would have us to know that until we deal with the brokenness in our connection to our Heavenly Father, nothing else in life will ever truly be right. God, you see, is the greatest reality. He is the reality of all realities. And everything else finds its orientation in Him. The good news is that because of what Jesus has done, we now have peace with God. And the Holy Spirit who lives in us confirms that peace through His active presence. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Peace with God. But at the same time that peace is directed upward with God, it is also directed inward. You see, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can now be at peace with ourselves. You know, most of us are hesitant to admit that that's a need we have. We like to give off the appearance of calmness and contentment. We want the people around us to think that we've got it all together. Life is under control. We're handling all our problems. We're meeting all of our goals. Our dreams are unfolding exactly according to the perfect plan we laid out for ourselves. And it's all good. That's what we want to convey to others. But all the while, internally, we're in conflict with ourselves. We're struggling with fear and with disappointment and with shame and with guilt and with more insecurities than we can count. That brings about a couple of negative results. One, we spend enormous amounts of energy trying to cover ourselves and put up our facades. How much energy do we consume trying to hide the truth about our lives from the people around us? And how much of that energy could be to re- redirected to more constructive purposes? The 
But secondly, those internal struggles that rage within us are often projected outward onto the world around us and lead to conflicts with other people. I believe sometimes our battles with others are just an external expression of the battles that are raging within us. And it's all because we are not at peace with ourselves. But the presence of the Holy Spirit within us means that it doesn't have to be that way. See, as we've already said, the Holy Spirit confirms that we've already been forgiven of our sin. We've already been justified with God. There's nothing left for any of us to do to prove our worthiness. When Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. What he meant is you don't have to do anything else. There's nothing else required of us to prove that we are worthy of his love because we never will be. We can simply receive the love and acceptance that we so desperately crave. And we don't have to waste another ounce of energy trying to hold on to some facade of perfection because it doesn't matter. In his closing words to the church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? The peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds, how desperately do we need that peaceful guard over us, guarding us from the fears, from the shame, from the guilt, from the insecurity that keep us from experiencing the fullness of God's life. Because of the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit, we can finally be at peace with ourselves. And then finally, and unavoidably, the peace of the Holy Spirit is expressed outwardly in our relationships with others. This is where the work of the Spirit becomes part of our public witness and shapes the way we live in and with the world around us. And we, we've already said that the Holy Spirit can give us inward peace with ourselves, but as important as that is, a word of caution is in order. If you listen to a lot of the language that's being used to talk about Jesus today, you can get the impression that the sole reason Jesus came into the world was to be our personal therapist. So the whole point of the gospel is to alleviate my stress and my anxieties. But it doesn't work that way. I can't be at peace with myself in isolation from the people around me. Jesus came into the world for the purpose of drawing us back into peaceful community with each other. See, the work of the Holy Spirit moves us towards actual peaceful, life-giving relationships with other people. Even people who are different from us. That's the great thrust of what we read in Ephesians 2 a moment ago. 
Paul says that Jesus Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility, a wall that in the ancient world, at least, kept Jews and Gentiles separate from each other. And he says he has now drawn them together into one new humanity. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to us today. Don't know that any of us went to bed last night anxious about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the local church. But in the ancient world, it was issue number one. And the fact that it had been dealt with was the biggest mystery that Paul could conceive of. Because racially, ethnically, culturally, religiously, Jews and Gentiles had nothing to do with each other. They were as different from one another as night and day. And the only thing they had in common was their shared mistrust and dislike of each other. And yet here is Paul telling us that by his death on the cross, Jesus has drawn both of them together into the same church and has made one new humanity out of them. He has created peace where once there was hostility. And why? Was it because the Jews or the Gentiles finally got their act together and came up with a new strategic plan? No. It was because in his own body, Jesus Christ crucified the hostility that was between them. And he's still doing the same thing today. When the Holy Spirit lives in us, he empowers us to be reconciled to other people, even people who are different from us. You know, the great lie of racism and white nationalism is that it assumes our unity with other people can only be based on our sameness with them. That we can have commonality with others only if they are already exactly like us. But that's a lie because it builds community on something that has to do with us, on some quality or characteristic that is inherent in us. And the gospel says exactly the opposite. We have nothing within us that makes us war worthy of any of it. The only thing that draws us together is the reconciling love of Jesus Christ. Of course, an honest assessment would recognize that we aren't even that good at building community with people who are like us in our marriages, in our families, in our homes, in our businesses, in our neighborhoods, and even in our churches when we operate by our own wisdom and out of our own strength and our own sense of goodness, it isn't long at all until our selfishness takes over and our relationships break down. But you see, the Holy Spirit empowers us to move in a new direction. The Spirit, first of all, empowers us to confess our sinfulness, to acknowledge the ways that we in our own rebellion contribute to the brokenness of the world around us and the relationships that define us. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit empowers us to offer forgiveness to others who have imparted their brokenness upon us. That is the only way to have true peace, to forgive, and to be forgiven. It is as simple and as difficult as that. 
And so if we want to offer the world an alternative to the conflict that seems to define us, we do so by learning to make peace with the people around us. Not just with the people who are easy to love. Jesus says in the Gospels, everybody can do that. But with the people who frustrate us. With the people who offend us with the people who differ from us, with the people who confuse us, even, yes, with the people who hurt us. Peace is not an abstract idea. And it doesn't come about simply because we sit in a safe sanctuary and wish for it. It comes when we allow the Holy Spirit to move through us and to reconcile our relationships with others, with our families, with our churches, with our co-workers, with our community. Quoting from Psalm 34, the Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Whoever would love life and see good days, must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Be active in it. Pursue it. Seek it. Reach out to others. That is what the Holy Spirit asks us to do. And it is what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. God has not created us for the purpose of throwing us into conflict. To the contrary, He desires us to be at peace, to know His fullness, His goodness, and His wholeness. He desires us to be at peace with Him, with ourselves, with others. That might seem like an impossible ideal in this broken world, but with God, nothing is impossible. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Would you pray with me? In these moments of silence, I would invite each of us to consider where peace is most needed in our lives right now. What relationship, what circumstance, what need exists for peace. For those who have not made their peace with God yet, I invite you in these moments to listen to the Spirit calling you back into relationship with Him through the sacrifice of Jesus. For those who are at war with yourselves, what burden is God asking you in these moments to release into His care? For those who are in conflict with someone else, what act of forgiveness and reconciliation is the Spirit pleading with us to make in this moment? Oh God, come and give us your peace. Amen. What response do we need to make? What 
line of peace do we need to pursue? What relationship needs to be healed? As we sing this closing verse, this closing hymn, I would invite you to ponder that. If there's something you need to respond to publicly, if it's to acknowledge an acceptance of Jesus Christ, I'll be here while we sing. If there's some other matter of personal business or or relationship that you need to share, I'll be here. But all of us have work to do. Be peaceful pursuers of God. I pray that will happen. Let's stand and worship Him together.